Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later in the show, we're visiting the Water Engineering Laboratory at the University of Auckland. But first, a southern right whale has been the talk of the town since it turned up in Wellington Harbour recently. It's been wooing the watching crowds with its antics. Now, since this is radio, I can't show you any photos, although you can find some of those on our webpage at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld but I can share with you some amazing recordings of southern right whales. These were made by Trudy Webster down in the right whale hotspot of the Auckland Islands. The first gunshot sounds you'll hear are made only by males, while the rest of the repertoire is produced by both males and females. Those with southern right whales having a good old chat about, well, something. We're not exactly sure what. But we do know some things about these mighty marine mammals, and here to tell us more is New Zealand's southern right whale expert, Will Raymond from the University of Otago. This time of year, in the winter, southern right whales are coming inshore from their offshore feeding grounds. They've spent the, the summer out looking for food, which is plankton, mostly copepods. And in the wintertime, the females come inshore to have their calves, and the rest of the population basically come inshore to socialise. Um, so the females are looking for good places to have their calves, which are basically sheltered waters, so sheltered from the big swells and the strong winds that you find out in the Southern Ocean. When they have their calves, the calves are not particularly strong swimmers, and so being buffeted around in the wind and the waves um, would be a tough life for them, especially when they've got the nurse from mum. So, yeah, they're looking for these, these calm and sheltered waters for, to reduce the energy expenditure by their calves. And they're socialising. Will they mate again this year? Will they mate again this year? No. Um, the females who have their calves won't mate again this year. Typically, they have a three-year calving cycle. But an interesting question is where the mating does go on. You know, so I said that they come in short to socialise. Uh, and on their wintering grounds, we see lots of social activity. And we do see mating behaviour. And we see mating actually happening. The question is, is this mating actually functional? Does it result in um, pregnant females? And what we think is that actually it doesn't because we very rarely, if ever, see uh, females on the calving ground in the year before they have their calves. So it suggests that they're getting pregnant somewhere else. Do we have any idea how long they're pregnant for? Uh, They're pregnant for a year. They mate, they get pregnant, they're pregnant for a year, they have their calf calf stays with mum for about a year until it's weaned 
and then mum has a, a year off essentially to um, uh, regather and gain her, regain her body condition and then she gets pregnant again. So let's just go back to the late 1700s, which was probably the last heyday of the southern right whale. What would New Zealand have been like in the winter then? Because there would have been lots of whales around. Would they have been all over the place? Yeah, we think they were. We think they were found from um, the northern tip of New Zealand right down to the, to the southern part and in the sub-Antarctic as well. There were lots of white, right whales around our coastline. The early settlers in Wellington actually complained that there were so many right whales in Wellington Harbour that um, all they're carrying on and um, was keeping them awake at night. That's interesting because Rob Seusted, who's a, a wildlife photographer, has been saying on Twitter that he said he's not sure that that's right because he reckons that by the time there were early European settlers in Wellington, he reckons most of the whales would have been hunted out. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I've heard the story. Um, I'm not quite sure what the source is. I think it might be a bit of an urban legend. But certainly there were an awful lot more right whales around uh, at that time. Otago Harbour is a, is a good example. Um, we know from the data that's come from the whaling stations, uh, the largest whaling station in New Zealand was at Otago, just inside Tairoa Head um, in Otago Harbour. And uh, at its peak in about 1835, they were taking about 100 whales out of the immediate area per year. So, you know, there were an awful lot more whales around New Zealand at that time. Um, I'm not sure if that story about Wellington Harbour is true, but it's certainly true um, that there were um, very high densities of right whales around our coast which made that coastal whaling operation um, you know, profitable at the time. But not for a very long time because they managed to kill them so effectively. But then we hunted them almost to extinction to the point where I think there were a few decades earlier in the 1900s where there were no southern right whales seen around mainland New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think the dates are 1928 to 1965 um, where there were no sightings of southern rights around mainland New Zealand at all. So we thought that we'd got rid of them altogether. And modelling work suggests that we reduced the New Zealand population from about 30,000 or so pre-commercial whaling down to fewer than 100 in the 1900s before they were protected. They were virtually extirpated from New Zealand, sadly. Well, luckily for us, a few of them in particular hung on in our subantarctic. So tell me about our subantarctic right whale populations. So yeah, they hung on in the subantarctic, and that's where they have been bouncing back. That's where the centre of population is now. The only breeding ground that we know about is in the Auckland Islands, and it's centred on Port Ross, which is a sheltered harbour at the northern end of the Auckland Islands. And that's the only place that we know where, where right whales are regularly having calves at the moment. There are the occasional calf um, seen around mainland New Zealand, but um, it's not regular. There are no um, places where you could go you know, in any one year and say, this is, you know, we're going to see calves there. So Auckland Islands are really where it's all happening, um, and the population seems to be seems to have been expanding there over the last um, a few years whilst we've been studying them, which has been great. There are also uh, right whales seen around Campbell Island, another one of New Zealand's subantarctic islands, and we didn't know much about what was happening around Campbell. The most recent expedition was in 2014 when a group of researchers went there, and they found uh, lots of right whales. They found that you know, there were plenty around. They were um, very reliable but they didn't find any calves. They didn't find any calving females. So we've got this really interesting situation where there are plenty of right whales there, but it doesn't seem to be a calving area. The estimates from our photo ID data suggest that the habitat was being used by maybe 300 whales, but yep, no mums, no calves. So a really interesting distinction between the Auckland Islands where all the calving is happening and and Campbell Island, which just seems to be a a place where whales go to socialise. 
I know that you do photographic identification of the whales. Did you see any matches between whales at Campbell Island and those at Auckland Islands? We did, yeah. We saw matches between the Campbell Island whales and the Auckland Island whales. And we've had matches between the Auckland Islands and the main, and mainland New Zealand and mainland New Zealand and Campbell Island as well. So the population isn't separated into these habitats. We can reasonably safely assume now that it's one big New Zealand population uh, that travels around and uses all these different habitats at different parts of their life. Photo identification, what is it about the whales that allows you to individually identify them? So they have this pattern of callosities on their head. The callosities are these, are these white patches on the head. You'll, if you look at a photograph of a right whale, you'll see these white patches on the head. People often think these are barnacles. Um, they're actually not barnacles. They're patches of callus or rough skin. And that callus is infested by these little crustaceans called cyamids. So it's literally a living mat of little crustaceans um, which are hanging onto the rough skin, nibbling away on that rough skin. That's how they get their food. And these patches of callus are unique to each whale, so that each whale has a different pattern. The patterns are really consistent, and it means that by photographing them, comparing photos with other photographs that we have, we can pick different whales apart and also follow the history of uh, the sightings we have for each whale. So in terms of the population at, at the Auckland Islands, how many whales are you seeing there when you go down in winter? We estimate, using our photo ID data, that for the time that we're down there, which is about three weeks in the winter time, there are between three and 400 uh, right whales using the habitat. But that's only a small portion of the population. The whole population doesn't come ashore every year. So that's just a, a fraction of the total population size, which is estimated to be about 2,500 now. And how fast is that population growing? We think at about 4 to 7% per year. Is that a good rate for a whale population? It's a really good, healthy rate for a whale population, yeah. You know, they only have one calf um, every three years. And so, you know, the population isn't going to grow super fast, but that's a very healthy rate. The, the, the very fastest um, growth rates in southern right whale populations are around about 7% per year. Well, that's great news. And around mainland New Zealand, where are the places that the southern right whales are turning up most often? It's amazing. They're everywhere, really. Um, there are some places that are more reliable, and it's the places mostly around southern New Zealand, so around the Otago coast, Hawaii Bay and Southland. You know, these are the places where um, their strongholds used to be, and so maybe it's not surprising that, that um, right whales are returning to those areas. But even so, there are, um, there are sightings, like I said, pretty much all around the country, so not unusual to be seen around Banks Peninsula, um, Kaikoura, uh, Wellington, and even far, further north. Um, so, you know, there have been right whales uh, sighted off the coast of Auckland and around uh, off the northern coast as well. Um, there was a, a mum and calf off the um, Bay of Islands just a few years back. So, you know, they really do seem to use the whole coastline and, and anywhere um, during the wintertime you might be lucky enough to see a southern right whale along our coast. So this whale that's turned up in Wellington Harbour that's eliciting so much interest from the public here, people say to me, what's it doing here? Has it got lost? It hasn't got lost. Um, what it's doing is it's coming inshore in the wintertime, as right whales do, um, to look for other right whales and it's coming back to a habitat that would have been used by its ancestors. Um, so it hasn't got lost. It's really checking out new areas and new territory for this expanding population. I imagine if it doesn't find any whales, uh, any other whales to hang out with, then it will move on. But it's really interesting that it has stayed around for a while. It's been quite athletic and acrobatic leaping around out of the water. Do you think that might be trying to signal, like sending a message to other whales out here, hey, I'm here? Uh, potentially, although the distances over which those messages will be effective aren't very great. We see that kind of behaviour a lot during the wintertime. Like I said, whales are, are socialising and clearly breaching, tail slapping, 
lobtailing and waving your uh, flippers around. These are some kind of signals. We're not exactly sure what they mean. And yeah, sure, maybe it's showing off, it's trying to communicate, but unfortunately with no other whales around, you know, you know, it doesn't seem like there are any others to hear those signals at the moment or see those signals. For the rest of the year, when the whales aren't close inshore and calving, where are they? So we know that they head offshore. Again, we're not precisely sure where. Uh, back in the whaling days, there used to be quite high densities of whales sighted over the Chatham Rise. That was a great place to forage in the summertime. Uh, and also out to the west of New Zealand, kind of south of Australia, in an area called the Subtropical Convergence, which is a really productive area where lots of their food, copepods, can be found at that time of year. These days, we do not hear reports of lots of whales out on the Chatham Rise. And I think because there's quite a lot of shipping traffic out there, there's quite a lot of fishing going on, I think that if there were lots of whales out there, then we would see them. So uh, the data we have at the moment suggests that the, most of the whales that are um, seen around New Zealand during the winter are going out to the west of New Zealand in the northwest, so an area to the south of Australia. And indeed, there were some satellite tags put on whales in 2009, I think it was, and all the whales where the tags worked uh, indicated that, the, yeah, they went out to the west. So I'd be super interested to find out more about that. We'd love to mount some expeditions uh, out into these remote areas of the Southern Ocean to try and find feeding right whales. In the meantime, you've got another of your annual research trips coming up down to the Auckland Islands in a couple of weeks. What are you going to be doing? The bread and butter is really continued monitoring of the population, um, the photo ID, so we can chart the population's recovery, estimate population size and survival rate and the rates at which they have their calves and so on. And for the last couple of years, we've um, added an exciting twist to it. We're using UAVs, drones, um, to get aerial images of right whales so that we can measure their body condition. We're really, really interested in effectively finding out how fat they are, which gives us an indication of um, what conditions are like in the Southern Ocean where they're foraging and whether or not that might be affected by, say, climate change or other impacts that we're having on the ocean. So, yeah, that's, the, um, that's a, a really interesting part of the project that we're involved in, with at the moment. And, of course, it generates some beautiful images of whales as well. You get, you get a, a, really, a really great pers- perspective from the bird's eye view. Are they looking like they're in good condition? They look fantastic, to be honest. They look very, very fat and healthy. Calves are very boisterous. The mums look in really good condition. And we know by comparing them to populations elsewhere in the world that um, our whales look really good. They look in really good nick. If we compare it to um, North Atlantic right whales, for example, which is a population which is in dire trouble, they're severely impacted by um, entanglement in fishing nets and ship strike and noise in their environment and all kinds of things. And they look skinny and um, their skin's in poor condition. They don't look anything like um, our big, fat, happy, healthy whales, which we see around New Zealand. Thanks, Will. That's southern right whale expert Will Raymond from the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our Changing World on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and now, understanding how streams and rivers work is important. We especially need to know how they might behave when they're flooding so we can safely build on the riverbanks and span them with bridges that are safe and reliable. Heide Friedrich is a water engineer at the University of Auckland and she's taking me on a tour of one of the university's largest laboratories, the Water Engineering Lab. The laboratory in itself is really large scale. Like people often when they hear the word laboratory, they think about, you know, some chemistry laboratory or microscope. But our size here is roughly 1,400 square metres. 
I think the length would be at least half a rugby field. And what we are doing in the water engineering laboratory is to bring the river or the ocean into the laboratory. The lab is impressive. There's a big underfloor reservoir to hold water that can be pumped around to various sized flumes or water channels. The biggest feature in the room is a steel flume that's one and a half metres wide and over 40 metres long. It's one of the largest flumes in the southern hemisphere. Anything with water? If you have the water not moving, not dynamic, there's no life in there. It's dead. Because we want to model natural processes that occur in river engineering or coastal engineering, we fill them up with water and then we create currents and they can be either wave for coastal work or they can be uniform currents for river work and we can change the, the magnitude in regards to the flow rates or velocities we want to study. The researchers are able to get water moving really fast if they want to. Water flow in some of the flumes can be more than a 1,000 litres a second. But as big as the flumes are and as fast as the water is flowing, these are still much smaller than natural streams and rivers. The trick is to downsize, but keep conditions realistic. With any kind of water engineering, scaling is really important. If you think of the Waikato River, obviously it wouldn't fit into our laboratory. So we do have to downscale, we call it. But if you work with water, you cannot scale it down infinitely much because you're losing the kind of specifications or characteristics that you are studying because you get into viscous effects. And a lot of the challenges occur at the interface of water with some kind of surface. The value of measuring water in a flume is that it can be completely controlled. There's none of the chaos and potential danger of trying to measure a river in flood, for example. By controlling it, we always reduce the system, how a process happens. So we have to be careful that we don't create something in the laboratory that is not applicable when we try to transfer that knowledge to the field because we reduced it so much. But that's the challenge between science and engineering. Science, you have this holistic approach, whereas engineering, we are reductionist. We reduce it so much so that we can really identify what is force, what is action and reaction. It's not just water that engineers like Haider are studying. Think of waves at a beach. They're usually stirring up lots of sand. That river is moving sediment, leaves, branches and, during a flood, maybe entire trees. So the Water Engineering Laboratory has sediment pumps as well as water pumps and dotted around the room are containers of stuff, ranging from fine sand to coarse pebbles and even larger rocks. In our work, we cannot scale the particle properties down because if you have your sediment that goes below a certain size, you get cohesive behaviour. So what you have in mud, and this is the kind of stuff, once you have cohesion, the whole physical processes behind it change. So what we're doing here, we still work with the same kind of sediment that you would find on the beach or in the river. And we do scale the water, so we do not have the kind of flow rates or velocities you would see in natural environment. But what we can't scale down is the sediment. It's important to have suspended particles. It's important to have small sand that fills gap between bigger borders. It's important to have 
even bigger borders like this because behind the borders you have something we call the separation zone. And that kind of zone provides a shelter for an ecosystem. A lot of what I'm doing is trying to understand that feedback between a pattern I see, which is like the overall pattern and the individual dynamics, and to understand really how differences in individual particles contribute to an overall pattern. Haida is interested in teasing out how different kinds of rivers, and importantly riverbeds, respond to different amounts of water, such as during a big flood. It's similar to our congestion on the roads, right? It's not the roads that are the problems. The congestion occurs when there are too many cars. Because when the road is full of cars, then the traffic slows down. And the same is if the channel would be deep enough and wide enough to carry a flood volume, you wouldn't have the flooding. But what we observe in New Zealand and internationally is a lot of variation at the riverbeds. And when there is aggradation at the riverbeds, there's less space for the water to go, and therefore you have the flooding. Just thinking about the length of this flume, and I'm also thinking about your analogy before about cars on a congested motorway. So as part of the reason for having such a long flume, because what might happen at one end then sort of compounds down the channel, in the same way that on a, you know, a busy motorway, if something slows the traffic down, the traffic slows down for ages afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So in our studies, we often call it uniform and static conditions. And uniform is related to the space. So this is where you said with the length of the flume. We call it an inlet where the water comes in and then an outlet where the water goes out. Those environments create already disturbance in itself. So we need to give the water a bit of space. We call it to develop uniform conditions. And often you see our measurement area is roughly two-thirds downstream, we call it, because that's the kind of area that is the least disrupted by the inlet. But even the outlet is further downstream. The effect also travels upstream, backwards. Turbulence can go backwards. Exactly. So you've got an experiment up and running, there's water and sediment washing down the flume. How do you measure things? So in the past we had instrumentation that you stick into the water, but by them actually being in the water, they change the behaviour of the water already, right? So what you study is not actually the pure dynamics of the water because it is already influenced by the equipment. And with the changes in cameras and imaging technologies, a lot of research in water engineering is done now with cameras. And then we analyse the images to get the information of the processes out. Do you add dyes to the water? Yeah, as you can see in our lab, you don't really see anything, you just see water. A big challenge is how do we make visible what is not visible. One technique would be to put dye in the water. But we also can put particles in the water that we then illuminate and we capture with our images. It's like looking at the sky. So if you have a clear sky, you see the stars. You wouldn't know there would be anything there during the day, right? So in regards, nightfall comes, no clouds, you can see the star. We do the same in our work here. If you just come here during the day as an analogy, 
you know, water is invisible. So we do really cool things to make the, the motion visible. And with the stars, what you observe, you think actually the stars are moving, right? But in effect, it is the Earth that is rotating. And that's why it's so important that you have some kind of viewpoint that you know what to relate it to. And this is the challenge again with water motion and sediment motion at the same time. What is moving? What do you study? So we do have the cameras going in burst mode, and that way we can track that trajectory of the particles. One of the things I'm thinking of that you see at the coast uh, with fine sand is that the, the action of the water, the action of the waves creates ripples. Yep. And do the ripples then in turn feed back into what's happening with the water? Yeah. So we call it really that, that feedback loop. In the water, we have turbulence. So if the water is in motion, if there are dynamics, there is turbulent behavior unless you have laminar flow. And in our world, we have something called the Reynolds number. That is the threshold where we know if the Reynolds number is below a certain value. We call it laminar flow. And it just means there's no mixing. So if I have that comparison again with the traffic and the cars, it just means cars stay in their lane. There's no merging. Once they are in the lane, they stay. So that is laminar flow. But we are a civil engineering laboratory. So a lot of what we are doing in here is turbulent flow. So you do have that mixing. It means the cars are merging, could be new cars joining the traffic, our cars leaving the traffic, and so on. Those kinds of turbulent imprints are visible on the sediment bed. And there is a lot of research out there what are the mechanisms that create ripples and tunes. And it's still a research area where, depending whom you speak to, you get different answers. So another challenge is because we deal with water in motion and sediment in motion. So you can't just glue all your pebbles down. <laughs> oh, that's what we're actually doing. We yeah. do cl glue the petals down. Because if you have two processes that are in motion, how do you want to understand cause and effect? Yeah. Because, you know, the water moves, the sediment moves. But does a sediment particle move because of the water? Or is the turbulence we observe in the water caused by a particle that is protruding out bigger than usual than another one? So the key thing really is the interactions. It's not just the water, it's not just the yeah. sediment, it's yeah. the interaction yeah. between yeah. the two. And that's, I think, really important also that we communicate that to the general public. Because it is just in general floods, you just associate with the water. And people who have observed a flood, they often will tell you, right, the aftermath is really all the mud and everything around. That shows you, you know, you have that interaction with something. So you have the change in water dynamics, you have the change in the channels, and then you have the living organisms that change in itself. So it's like a three-way feedback mechanism. If this all sounds challenging, Heide says it is. The son of... Albert Einstein, he was a professor in sediment dynamics. And in our research world, we always have this little anecdote that Albert Einstein taught his son, son, you couldn't have chosen anything more difficult to study than sediment transport. Thanks, Heide. And that's Heide Friedrich studying difficult questions in the Water Engineering Laboratory at the University of Auckland. And that's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. You can catch up with those stories again, along with photos and links, at our webpage, 
rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. And keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Good night from me, Alison Balance. Naku mei nami hindui. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.